Good to see you. You can get your Bibles out. Open to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, page 1343 on the Pew Bible there in front of you. So, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. If you get to Philippians, you went too far. We're in a series we call it, we're calling Four. And we want the world to know that God is for them. And we need to be reminded before we do so that God is for us. He's for us. And He's been for us. We've seen over the last couple of weeks that God put us where we are so that we can show the people around us who He is. And we've been basing this whole conversation around the great commandment that Jesus gives us that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, and all our mind, and our neighbor as ourself. And we've been talking about the impossibility of these two things, that we are not capable of loving God with everything that we are, nor loving ourselves as we love ourselves, that these are two extraordinarily difficult, actually humanly impossible things. But if we spend time at the feet of Jesus, then we'll be able to accomplish things for Jesus. Or you could think of it this, and the Bible teaches this in so many ways. Last week we looked at Mary and Martha, but you might think about uh, in the Gospel of John when Jesus talks about the vine and the branches. Listen, you got you to gotta focus on faithfulness before you can focus on fruitfulness. Faithfulness always precedes fruitfulness. So however you want to think about it, we're we're looking at these realities and we're, we're saying, now, how are we going to be able to show impractical and unreasonable love to those around us as we endeavor to love our neighbors? And we want, we, God doesn't want anything from us. He wants something for us. We want the world to know that God wants something for them. He doesn't want anything from them. And once we find the treasure that is the gospel, everything changes, right? So what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about um, what we need to understand as we begin to move towards loving our neighbor, what we need to be reminded about ourselves and our own journey. If you look with me, look down in Ephesians 2. I want you to look at verses 8 and 9. These are some of the most Familiar verses in all of the Bible. Maybe in the whole New Testament, apart from John 3.16, this might be second. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace we have been saved through faith, not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Very familiar. If you're a Christian, you know those verses. It's an amazing declaration of how we got to where we are. Right? But here's my question. What preceded that? In other words, before that happened, why do we need him? Why did we need him? What was going on there? What will he do when we're found by him? And then the last question is, well, what can we be? Who can we become once we're found by him. So these are the questions we're going to strive to answer this morning. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these amazing words that we're going to look at. And we thank you that you spoke them for our benefit and edification. And we need to hear from you today. So will you meet us in the midst of our individual realities, Lord? The things that we're dealing with facing, struggling with, thinking about whatever it is, will you just take us on a journey to where and how this all began and help us to see clearly that when we depart from this place, we'll know that we've been in your presence. So give us ears to hear, we pray, for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, get your listening guides out. First thing we want to talk about is why. We want to ask the question, why? Why 
Why is this grace amazing? What makes it amazing? What's the, what, what's the reason behind it? When we look at how chapter 2 in Ephesians begins, I want you to look at verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So right off the bat, here's what the Bible wants us to know. Before Christ, we were dead. Dead. That's, that's not the way we tend to think about it. Now, as we endeavor to love our neighbors, well, who are our neighbors? What's the condition that our neighbors are in? What, are, what is the way we need to understand that our neighbors are experiencing life? They're dead. Now, they don't know they're dead, just like I didn't know I was dead and you didn't know you were dead. But here's what we can discern, is that people are hopeless. They're hopeless. Now, as I think back to the, my early 20s, and I, don't, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I don't know anything about uh, religion or the Bible or anything like that. And so I'm just a self-proclaimed atheist. As you know, we talk about this all the time. And so my perspective is I'm just trying to live life. But in the process of living life, here's what I'm doing. I'm doing what, what the world is filled with people doing today. Maybe you're here today and this is what you're doing. I'm trying to find things that, that, will, that I can connect to. I'm trying to find play, uh, the place I belong. I'm trying to find my purpose, the meaning. What am I, why am I here? What is this all about? Where do I fit? And so I'm, I'm trying to figure these things out. And everything that I'm trying to grab a hold of and everything I'm trying to connect to, I'm trying to find joy in this. I think, well, if I do this, I'll, I'll be happy. If I accomplish this, I'll be happy. And literally, one by one, I would systematically accomplish these things or do these things. And then at the end, I would be empty. And I would realize it didn't work the way that I thought. And so I was fully convinced as a young man, fully convinced that if I could right all the wrongs, if I could, if I could, if I could work my way to where all the problems of my youth were reversed, I would be happy because I knew that what I had experienced had made me miserable. So I thought, if I am successful, if I have money, if I get married, I'll have family, see, because I, I didn't have people. So if I get people, I'll, I'll, I'll be happy. I was poor, so if I have money, I'll be happy. And so I went after all of these things. And one by one, as I would achieve them, they wouldn't, they wouldn't make me happy. They wouldn't fulfill me. They wouldn't give me what I was looking for. And the reason is, is because I was dead. All the things that I was pursuing were things that, can't solve the problem that I have. But I didn't know that until, until I met the gospel. And the gospel revealed to me what my problem was. See, we, we're not going to understand that Jesus is who Jesus says he is until we connect with the reality of who we are apart from him. We have to connect to that. And listen, what do you mean dead? Because I wasn't dead. Your neighbors aren't dead. Well, we all know that we're more than just physical. You're, you're not just a physical being. You have a soul. You have a spirit. There's more to you than that. So you can be physically fine and yet be utterly devastated, broken, wounded, hurt, right? But so... How is that possible? See, you can be hurt by a broken leg or you can be hurt by a broken heart. And sometimes an internal hurt is worse than an external hurt, right? And so we're more than just physical. We all know that. Nobody would disagree with that. And so what the Bible's teaching us is that we're spiritually dead. We're not physically dead. Now, look, look at Genesis chapter 2. Let's look at the beginning. 
Here's what the Bible says. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree in the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now listen. God creates Adam and Eve in his image, puts them in a perfect environment, and then puts a tree And the tree is there because God desires relationship with us. And in order for there to be relationship, there has to be freedom of choice. If there's no choice, then it's a forced relationship and you can't force love. Love has to be a choice, right? And so the tree's there to bring choice. So God will never force anyone to love him. He will only invite us into that relationship. And so he puts choice. And he says, if you eat of this tree... You will surely die. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And so in the moment of their sin, when Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree, they die spiritually. And therefore, that sin translated to all of us who follow. Romans chapter 5, therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, Adam, and death through sin, and thus... Thus, death has spread to all men because all sinned. You see, we're born into this world dead spiritually. We're not born deficient. We're not born spiritually disabled. We're born spiritually dead. We're dead because of sin. And so our problem, you can't can't understand the solution if you don't understand the problem. That sin, from the beginning, when we chose to go our own way, led to spiritual separation, which is death. Now let's look at how this all begins. Look at verse 1 again, Ephesians 2, 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also... We all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Now, I know that's a lot, but what what the Bible is telling us is that we were born separated from God, spiritually dead. No one had to teach us how to sin. That came natural. We, had, we needed structure, rules, and discipline to do the right thing. We wouldn't do that naturally. Naturally, what we do is sin. And every parent understands this fully and completely because nobody had to teach their kid to disobey. It was natural. Right? Yes. Because we're born spiritually dead. Now, I realize that those babies that are in the preschool right now are beautiful and amazing and wonderful, and especially one of them, like, way more than the others. But besides that, they're amazing. But even that one special, super, unbelievably precious one is spiritually dead. She's spiritually dead. And you see, we're not going to know who Jesus is. We're not going to understand what Jesus did or why he did it until we understand who we are. We got to get who we are and what we have done and what, what situation we were in. You see, a dead person is different than any other need you could possibly have. It's just different. And everyone in the world falls into one of two categories. Either you were spiritually dead or you are spiritually dead. And there's only two possibilities. Now think about this. Think about the world that we live in. Most people you don't have to convince the world is filled with evil. There's evil in the world, right? You don't have to convince people that. They're aware of that. They know that babies are killed and children are abused and Murders are committed and wars are fought and atrocities happen every day, right? And so we, we would agree that there's evil in the world, that the world is not 
just good and fine. But at the same time, in the midst of this reality in which we live, there's also this, this large component of the culture today that I'll never understand. That read the headlines every day, live in the same world I live in and you live in, and yet come to the conclusion that people are basically good. And we, we see this because when, when something bad happens, the world acts surprised. They can't believe. And then they're, they're interviewing people like, how could this have happened? I'm thinking, really? The world is not basically good. Newsflash, spiritual problems can never be solved with social programs. The peace the world needs will never be achieved by treaties. The prejudices that divide us will never be eliminated by discussion. Rebellion is not going to be corrected by loads of self-esteem and understanding. Wrongs can't be righted by litigation. Diseases will never be eliminated by research. Evil is woven into the fabric of humanity. And it is obvious. And it is. But here's the thing. I know that that feels so... But it's supposed to. You know why? You're supposed to be reminded of this and feel... Hopeless because that's what it is. The people around us are hopeless. They're trying to solve problems, spiritual problems with worldly answers, and it will never work. But we know the answer. And so we need to realize that when we go out into the world and engage with people, the people that God puts in our path, we need to understand they're hopeless. They're hopeless. And that will soften our hearts because you know why? Because we'll say, you know what? I was hopeless. I know what it feels like to be hopeless. You see, I remember that in those days leading up to my salvation, the reality was I've tried everything I know to try and nothing works. And I'm at the end of my rope. I was hopeless. I didn't understand the problem. I didn't know I was spiritually dead. I didn't know what God had done. But here's what I knew. I knew that I had done everything I knew to do. So what? Number two, what? Well, what exactly did God do in response to our being dead? Now, I want you to think about this. Being helpless is bad, right? But being hopeless is worse. There's a big difference between helpless and hopeless. See, helpless is this, the terrible feeling of somebody that you love is, uh, you know, having this very complex surgery. And the doctor says, if they don't have the surgery, they're going to die. And if they do have the surgery, they might die. And they wheel your loved one back into the operating room. And you're sitting out there in the, in the lobby and you feel helpless. There's literally nothing you can do to help them. You want to switch places with them, but you can't. And it's this helpless feeling of, well, I wish I could do something, but I can't. But you can pray. You're not hopeless. You have hope. You're helpless, but there's hope. You see, helpless is bad, but hopeless is much worse. Hopeless is, there's no light at the end of my tunnel. I have a problem that nobody can solve. I have questions that nobody can answer. You see, hopeless is when you just start to give up. You, 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 don't, you, you don't see any way that this could possibly work out. You take humanity, 
separated from God equals hopeless. So it's just a matter of time. People apart from God are on a journey of hopelessness. They're on a journey towards a dead end. And so when we come in contact with them, we want them to know, hey, God is for you. He's not who you think he is. You're not who you think you are. But here's the truth about how when, when a, a loving God intersects with a hopeless person, something amazing happens. See, look at verse 4. We're hopeless, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. You see, but God. Now, I want you to notice something. It doesn't say, but we. It doesn't say, but me. I'm hopeless, but I figured out the answer to this. I'm hopeless, but I connected with the people, and together we. That's not how that works. Our hopelessness is predicated on our deadness, and deadness has no solution except for life, and you and I cannot give ourselves life. We can't make ourselves spiritually alive, but God can. And so the Bible comes along and says, but God. Now I want you to think about that little conjunction and how but changes our experience in life. While you were in church Sunday, somebody broke into your house. But the alarm went off and chased them away. You walk into the doctor's office and he says, You have cancer. And your heart sinks. And your life starts flashing before your mind and you're reeling at this information. And then he says, but we caught it early and it's totally curable. You see how that changes everything? Just that one simple reality. But your teenager just learns how to drive. The phone rings. It's the highway patrol. You feel like you're about to die. And the voice says, there's been an accident. But everyone's okay. See, you and me were dead. But God intervened. Everything changes when an all-powerful God comes into the picture. See, all the impossibilities go away when the God of the universe walks in. The God who spoke the world into existence. The one who rose from the dead. The one who says that nothing is too hard for him. That all things are possible with him. The only one who could have said but in that situation did. Now let's think about this. But God, who is, what about him? He's rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Now we've been talking in the weeks prior about mercy and how mercy is not treating someone the way they deserve. Now I want you to look at the progression here. Who is rich in mercy? See, because of God's mercy, I don't get what I deserve. Because of God's grace, I get what I don't deserve. Because of God's love, I get to experience 
God's grace and mercy because he, he loves us with this great love that he loves us. And so we were, see, we, we have a tendency now to get a little bit too self-inflated here. And so we need to have a, a right understanding of, of how we stand in this. God does not love us because we're valuable. We're valuable because God loves us. And it's very important to understand the difference. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive with Christ, raised us up, verse 6, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show his exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What you need to see here is that the reason that we're, that, that but God is able to bring life into our dead souls is because he's alive. See, because Jesus lives physically, I can live spiritually in him. Because Jesus lives physically, I can live personally for him. Because he lives physically, I can live eternally with him. Everything, listen, if he's not alive, he can't make you and me alive. The reason he makes us alive is because he is alive. That's the whole point. And so we are hopeless. This is the, the moment that the resurrection changes everything. God defeats death and raises from the dead. Now he's alive, so we are alive. And how does the Bible say we're alive? In Christ. That's how we're alive. You have life in you today because of Christ's life. If he's not alive, you have no hope of being alive. Only his life can resolve our deadness. See, if you think about this, think of all the things you need. Think of all the things you need. That you need that you have to have every day that you live for every day. Do you really need them? Here's what I mean. A dead person doesn't need food because they can't eat it. A dead person doesn't need water because they can't drink it. A dead person doesn't need money because they can't spend it. A dead person doesn't need anything except one thing. The only thing a dead person needs is life. Nothing else matters. Nothing else, is, it's all just waste. If you're not alive, it's pointless. The only thing that can solve being dead is life. And that's what God delivers he brings life to our dead souls. And so we, we realize that I can be alive today because he's alive. That's why I can be alive. And you know, the Christians have a bad habit of tangling things up and, and, and making things inclusive and exclusive. And so outsiders feel outside and they feel separated and they feel and it's be, and it's because sometimes we lose our way and we we forget we forget what it's like to be dead we talk in ways that confuse things and mix things up and make it difficult we need to understand that you know what all the dead people that God puts in your path even if they heard me make that statement they would think what kind of wacky cult is this? What do you mean dead people? It's like I've been, you know, it's like some zombie show. Well, kind of. But here's the thing. 
A lot of them, especially here in the Bible Belt, they have ideas about God and about Christianity that are not right. And we need to be aware of that. We need to be certain that we understand, look, Christianity is not about making sick people well. It's not about making bad people good. It, it's not about, you know, any of those. It's not about helping people become what they want to be or what they ought to be. It's about giving dead people life. That's what Christianity is. Look at verse 7. The Bible says, so in the ages to come. Now, now listen, think about this now. In the ages to come, He, God, capital H, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In the ages to come. So the God of the universe, the, the, the unparalleled God of the universe, the one who has created everything with just the, the sound of his voice, who rules and reigns over all things, who sustains all things, who holds all things together, who is the you know, unrivaled, greatest There's no one greater. There's no thing greater. God's throne is above everything. And yet, the Bible says of all the great things that God's done, He's going to show His exceeding riches, the riches of His grace and kindness through these dead people that He breathes life into. Now, so, so you know what this means? This means that the God that created this whole entire world and this whole universe and everything that is displays for all eternity His greatness by the retired school teacher that He saves. By the teenage boy that He invites into a relationship with Him. By saving a single mom. That his greatness is on display in you. And will be for all eternity if you were dead and now are alive. That God is saying this this is the... Do you know what God has on his display case in his living room? Wherever or on his mantle? His alive children who were once dead. This is the display of His greatness. That's an amazing thought. And so why does God do all this? Well, because I was dead. And so what does God do? Well, He makes us alive. But here's the big question. Three. Who? Who? Not who does he make alive, but when he makes us alive, who can we be? Who can I be? Because remember how we came into this this text from the reality of we're dead and we're spiritually dead and we've been grabbing at all these things, trying to find purpose and meaning. and, And so when we are made alive spiritually, the question is, well, then well, then who does that make me? And this is where these very famous verses at the end come into play. Look at verse 8. For by grace we've been saved through faith, not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now listen. Clearly, here's what's clear by that text. What's clear is, is that We haven't been saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, lest anyone should boast, to go to heaven. That's clearly not what it says. See, it says, we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Why? Why? What does it say? For good works, which God has prepared. Now, here's the million-dollar question. If I pray and we all go home right now, here's what happens. Well, what are these good works? And how do you know when you're doing them? Where do you look to find them? What are they? 
If I'm God's workmanship, then what is this supposed to be like? That's what you got to know. That's what we got to figure out. What do you mean good works? What does that mean? Let me tell you how the world resolves these issues, okay? This is how me, you, and everyone approaches this. The first thing we do is we're trying to figure out who we are. We're born spiritually dead. And so we come into this world and we start trying to figure out who we are by looking within. We try to look within ourselves. We try to, we try to figure out, well, well, what are my likes? What are my dislikes? What are, how am I put together? What is it about me that makes me unique or whatever the case may be? And so I look within myself to find my identity. And that doesn't work. Because the solution to who I was created to be is alive and I'm dead and I'm not going to find life in a dead self. The other thing we do is if we're not looking within, we're looking without. In other words, we're looking out at the people around us and we're saying, who? See, here's what, here's what you've all experienced. You've all experienced this point in time where you're trying to figure out who you were and you looked around and said, now, who's, who's who I want to be? Who's doing something that I want? That's what I did. And so I started trying to find things that were the opposite of what I'd experienced, thinking that that would solve my problem. So I wanted to emulate my life after people who were other things on the outside. And so I'm looking around, trying to find people who are out there and saying, I want to be like this and I want to be like that. And here's the thing. My identity is not out there in somebody else. And it's not within me. And listen, if you, if you want to understand why we are where we are as a culture, this explains the whole thing. What is the result of people who look for their identity within? Now remember, think about where we are as a culture. Every time you touch your phone, which by the way is on average 2,600 times a day, every time you touch your phone, you're interacting with a device that is built on an algorithm that is predisposed to tell you what you want to hear about yourself. You understand that? Every time you touch it, it gravitates towards what you want. And so if you're trying to find yourself, you, every time you touch it, and then if it's not telling you what you want to hear about you, it's aligning you with who out there, because it's already studied everything about you, so it's aligning you with what out there that you want to be like. Now, let's think this through. What happens, what happens if, I, if I find my identity within me? I become sensitive, easily offended. You know why? Because if my identity is within me, then if you disagree with anything, you're, you're condemning me. You can't disagree with me or you're going to make me mad. You're going to hurt my feelings. I'm going to be way overly sensitive because what's in me is what identifies me, what makes me who I am. And so you have to connect. With, if, you, if you are against what's in me, then you're against me. And so I take everything personal. Sound familiar? What if I find my identity in what's out there? It separates me. Because whatever out there I identify with, then I don't identify with what, what's not me. And so then we get, we get separated. Well, whoever's finding their identity externally separates from the other people. And so we become divided and we become, we become, we go into factions. We go into to teams and rivalries and discord because here's the thing I'm on this team and you're on that team because my identity is in this group and your identity is in that group so the result of looking in the wrong places for our identity makes us oversensitive and separated is there a better description of the world today than those two things that's exactly how we've become 
who we are. But what would the Bible teach us to do? Not to look within, not to look without, but to look up. If we look up to find our identity, if we look to Christ to find our identity, then here's what happens. We realize these familiar words, but maybe in a new way. In other words, the Bible says that we're his workmanship. Well, guess what? Then God does the work. Now think about this. If we're his workmanship, we don't do the work. We've been worked on. You see, that word workmanship, it means masterpiece or poema in the Greek. Now, the masterpiece is worked on by the master. The masterpiece is the recipient of the work. You understand? It doesn't do the work. The clay doesn't tell the potter what to do. The potter moves the clay. So if we're his workmanship, which the Bible says that we are, then he does the work. So that means God's the one who does the work, right? That means that I work out because he worked in. I can't, I can't work out if he hasn't worked in. That was last week's message. He's got to work in first before you can work out. you got to be Mary before you can be Martha. So salvation is not a result of or from good works. Salvation is for good works. So we become, this is what the Bible's saying, we become his masterpiece. He breathes life into us. We become his masterpiece for good works. The good works didn't make us the masterpiece. That's important to understand. So if God does the work, then what does that tell us? Well, we, God only does his work his way. He doesn't do it our way. He does it his way. Because God's way is the best way. And God understands how to do it, right? And so we're, we're his masterpiece. He does the work. He does all of his work his way. So what, what, what is his work? What are these What are these things that he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them? What are they? How do I find them? Have you ever felt like you were just searching for these things? Like, what, well, what are they? I want you to notice. Look back at verse 8 again. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourself or yourselves. Here we have one of the most popular, well-known passages in the New Testament. And very few people have ever taken the time to actually read and understand what it says. Who is this talking to? Not of yourselves. This is declaring something that is true about you individually, but not exclusively. Let, let me explain what I'm talking about. This workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, the whole context of Ephesians chapter 2 is talking about the church and how, the, how, these, how who was dead were these people that were mortal enemies, the Jews and the Gentiles, but God breathed life into them and they became one in Him. And He's talking about His people, His family, His children. And what He's saying here is He's saying, listen, we're not, I'm not God's masterpiece apart from you. It doesn't work like that. Look down. When all this comes to a, a conclusion, just go down in your Bible. Look at verse 19. Watch how this all comes together. The whole context of what Paul's talking about, here's what he says, verse 19, Now therefore you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but 
fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Do you see that? This not, listen, this, you have to understand what's going on here. This promise is the promise to me and you together. Only when the pieces are assembled by the master is it a masterpiece. If the master hasn't assembled the pieces, you know what they are? They're just pieces. Again, now you're starting to understand the why you, you, I've explained to you the, the identity crisis in the culture and why the culture is where it is. Now, why is the church in the, in the position that it is? It's because we live in a day and time where people are forsaking this truth right here. They think they can be a masterpiece without being put together by the master, and that will never work. It will never work. So it's true that you are individually created fearfully and wonderfully exclusively by God to be who you are. That is true. But you need to understand that to that you are a piece that God created to be a part to be connected that if you disconnect you can't walk in the things that God has for you. That's not how that works. All of your uniqueness has been designed to function as the part of a people. That's the only way you can possibly understand Ephesians chapter 2. There is nothing about this chapter in the Bible that is just you on an island by yourself. This is what God did in you, for you. It is not at all true. That's not true. I'm not his workmanship. You are not his workmanship. We are his workmanship. We are. That these steps that God has prepared, we take together. Because we're, what, what are the steps that we're taking? We're taking steps that are, that are seemingly impossible a lot of times, aren't they? And how do we do that? We do it together. Think about it. Why does the Bible say don't forsake the assembling of yourself? Because it's a rule? Because God just says so? The Bible says you don't do that because in the assembling of ourselves, we encourage each other. That's what the point is. If you separate the peace, from the master's plan. It won't experience being a masterpiece. So all these hopeless, disconnected people that are finding their identity in the wrong things, the message that God has for us today, this morning, our, our response to this should be, I remember what that feels like. And it breaks my heart to think about the people around me that feel hopeless, that are dead. And so therefore I'm compelled as part of you together because you spur me on as I spur you on. We together realize what we've got to do is we've got to, we've got to reach our neighbors we got to reach our co-workers. we got to reach the people. They're dead. See, the only way to know who you are is to be a part of an us. It's the only way. You were made by God to be a part of an us. You know what?
when you love your neighbors? What are you inviting them into? A relationship with God. And what does that look like? We got we to gotta understand something. That this evangelism strategy of repeat this prayer after me. And good luck. I hope it works out for you. Don't worry. Whatever happens now, you're going to be in heaven. In our heart, we know that's wrong. It's wrong. We're, we're inviting people into a relationship with God. That What does this text teach us? That He's not going to force anyone into, but He invites you into. When you come into a relationship with Him, what, what is the language that He uses? You are adopted into what? Into His family. You become a son or a daughter. You don't disconnect yourself from the family. You're in the family. You're a part. You're, you're a building, a temple where the Spirit of God dwells, where Jesus is the cornerstone, but we're all blocks building that temple. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? Yes, and because we were all dead, we look out into the world that's finding their identity in themselves or in the world around them, and our heart breaks for that, and we move out into that, and we say, what is too hard? What, what will I, am I not willing to sacrifice if I see you for the dead person you are and I know that God has life available for you what will I not do to help you see that it changes everything this is why we're here this is why you exist this is why Jesus did what he did this is why God for all ages to come will have His goodness and His mercy on display by the people. Not the person, the people, the family, the children that were dead and He made alive. We can't be without each other. Let's stand and bow our heads.